0: Welcome to the History of Korea, I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, the Koreans fight back. (laughs) I nicknamed this episode the Return of the Goryeons, basically to fit the theme of the Star Wars franchise. But that's where the similarities end because the return of the Jedi is a triumph of the Jedi's against against the mighty Sith Empire. Unfortunately, the return of the Gorians consists of the assassinations of 72 Mongol officials, which then promptly ignites yet another offensive by the mighty Mongol Empire, ultimately ending in defeat for the Koreans. In other words, if you're on the side of the Koreans, there is no happy ending here. In the last episode, we covered the lightning-fast and brutal attack of Korea by the Mongol army. We covered a lot of detail, but in terms of time, we covered just a year, from the first incursion in August 1231 to around spring 1232, because that's how long it took for the Mongols to submit the kingdom. We left off with the brutal evacuation of the capital to Geesong, uh, from Gesong to Ganghwa Island. The capital now moved, Goryeo makes a very critical decision. The decision concerns 72 Dariuyachi or resident commissioners, of the Mongols. This was standard Mongol practice after they had conquered a land. They would install these daoriachi to oversee the territory. The Koreans would make the fateful decision of assassinating all of them. This was their quote-unquote revenge. But this was like poking the eye of a tiger and would in fact cause the second major offensive of this war. The Yuan uh, Kaoli Shi, or the, the Mongol records, remarks in its typically terse fashion that, quote, In 1231, we conquered them, and King Gojong again submitted. Seventy-two Dadiachi, or resident commissioners, were placed in the hyun of the capital prefecture to supervise them, and the army was withdrawn. The following year, they killed all the officials of the offices which the court had established and rebelled seeking refuge on islands on the sea. There's been some debate over these events, but the historical accounts suggest the following. Once the main Mongol forces withdrew, the Koreans made an attempt to purge the Mongols from the peninsula by a. killing all the commissioners and b. evacuating the population to remote mountain locations and islands. Further, the records show that the 72 commissioners were stationed from the western capital or Segyang or modern-day Pyongyang to the Yalu River in the very north, so basically the northwest of Korea. My question is, were the Koreans so convincing in their submission to the Mongols that the Mongols allowed their 72 commissioners to be killed at once? The Mongols are known to have the most sophisticated intelligence network during that time. How did they not foresee that all of their commissioners would be killed? Or perhaps we're witnessing the ministerial deficiency of the Mongol Empire. After all, one criticism of the Mongol Empire is that they were good at conquering but not so great at administering. Although Kublai Khan would actually prove prove that stereotype wrong. From the Korean side, think of how sophisticated their action to kill these commissioners must have been. Without modern communication, they had to secretly coordinate the almost simultaneous assassination of all 72 of the officials. It must have been a huge undertaking. And how bad must it have gotten that the Koreans would dare such a thing? Remember, most of the country is in a very bad place after 60 years of military rule and the Mongol attacks. The demands of the Mongols must have been truly horrendous for the country to fight back in their weakened state. So here comes the second Mongol campaign in Korea. Sartak's second attack comes in the 8th month of 1232. What we can understand from this attack is that the southern part of the peninsula was still not totally under Mongol control, just assumed under Mongol control after uh, suzerainty. Sartak and his army swept into the Han Valley easily until he was unexpectedly killed by a chance arrow from a Buddhist monk, Kim yun Hu. The Mongol army withdrew after Sartak's death, leaving the Korean trader Hong Bogwon to manage things in the western capital until their return. All throughout this fighting, there was a steady stream of communication between the Mongol court and the Korean court, now ensconced on Gangwa Island. For example, the Mongols demanded an explanation of why Goryeo suddenly decided to turn coat and kill the Mongol commissioners as soon as they left the peninsula. Goryeo responded by saying that they received a false alarm from a certain Song Ib-chang that the Mongols were attacking the cities. They were afraid that they wouldn't be able to produce their annual tribute. The Mongols asked for Song to be turned over to him, but the Koreans said he had been lost at sea. The Koreans had imprisoned Jo Sukchang. The Mongols demanded his release to their custody. The Koreans explained that he had fallen ill and was bedridden. It seems that the Mongols had quickly worn out the cooperation of the Koreans through their ex- excessive demands of tributes. The Koreans responded in kind with a kind of passive resistance. Well, until they killed the 72 commissioners, that is. For example, the Mongols demanded a census. The Koreans did not deliver. The Mongols demanded an army to put down Wanu. Remember, the Eastern Jurchen warlord. The Koreans refused. The Mongols demanded aid to put down Laodong. The Koreans provided some ships and seamen, but nothing more. The Mongols demanded hostages, especially royalty. This was especially resisted by the Koreans. And say what you will about Che U, the military dictator at the time, but he was scrappy, and he at times conceded, then resisted the Mongols, given the extremely limited resources at his disposable, disposal. Meanwhile, the Koreans and the Eastern Jurchen were also speaking, conspiring against the Mongols. In early 1233, the Koreans tried sending an envoy to the Jin court, but the roads were blocked and he returned unsuccessful. Finally, in the spring of 1233, a Mongol envoy arrived with a list of Gorya's crimes. Quote, Your memorial reporting the facts involved was drawn up entirely in false statements and phrases of excuse. How difficult is it to know one from the other? If you were not false, you would come for an audience. From the previous pacification of the Gitan until the slaying of Chala have not sent a single soul to our gates. You have never acted in compliance with the laws and statutes of our great nation. This is your first offense. And when those who were sent to offer the precepts and instructions of immortal heaven summoned you, then you dared to kill them. This is your second offense. This missive goes on this missive, well, unquote. This missive goes on to list another three offenses in the same angry fashion. At the end, the Mongols demand that the Goryeo field an army against Wanu or suffer the consequences, calling upon Goryeo to obey the quote precepts and instructions of immortal heaven. unquote. The Korean answer was to renew the fight to oust the traitor Hong Bogwan from the western capital Hong's response was to team with Pil Hyun Bo, kill the Goryeo commissioners in the city, and lead the city in an uprising against the Goryeo. Choi U sent three thousand of his house troops to put down that revolt. Hong got away, but they did capture his father Hong Dezan, his brother Hong Beksu, and his children. They captured Pil Hyun Bo, took him to the capital, and cut him in two at the waist in the marketplace. The rest of the citizens of the western capital were evacuated to islands, leaving the capital deserted. In the spring of 1234, those who had taken the western capital from the Hong Boguan were rewarded. Zhou Sukchang was finally beheaded after a prolonged imprisonment. Hong Beoguan fled northward to Laodong where he and his people were settled between Laoyang and Shenyang. This is in modern-day China northwest of the peninsula. In 1234, the Mongols placed him in command of the army and people of Gorya and ordered him to subjugate those who had not yet submitted. The Mongols then brought an edict to the Korean people, telling them that anyone who captured the Gorya king and the resistance, and the resistance to them would be placed on equal footing with Hong. In an effort to win Hong over back to the Korean side, Cheu elevated Hong's father to the rank of Grand General and his younger brother to that of Colonel. They would remain hostages, however, for many years. In the ninth month of 1233, Wanu's upstart state, the Eastern Jurchen, was finally conquered by the Mongols and he was beheaded. This now freed the Mongols to direct their full attention to Korea. In the first month of 1234, Prince Guyuk and Prince Alchitai, with the help of the Song, seized the Jin capital at Fengqing and completed their conquest of North China. At the tai held by Ogadai in 1235, the Mongols decided to attack Gorya, the nations west of the Volga, and the borders of Kashmir. Can you imagine a military so deep and so strong that they think of nothing of opening up four fronts at the same time? The Germans in the 20th century were worried about two fronts. The Mongols were confident enough to attack not just four fronts, but four fronts representing incredible civilizations including Gorya, China, Russia, and the Indian subcontinent. This is truly the peak of Mongol dominance, and Korea is right in the thick of it. So here comes the third offensive. In July 1235, Mongols raid the Eastern Defense Command. Inhabitants of the southern capital were ordered to evacuate to Ganghwa. The next month, Mongol forces led by Tankut Batur and our old friend, Hong Beogwon, cap- captured Yonggang, Hamjong, and Samdong, major cities in Sahe province. They pushed the Korean defenses all the way down to modern-day Sangju, which is all the way down the peninsula in Gyeongsang province. In the spring-, spring of 1236, the Mongol forces, which had been camped in 17 places in the north, began their move south. Hangju, Sinju, and Anju fell in April 1236, while Geju, Byeongtaek, and Hayangjang fell in the next month. By November, the Mongols had penetrated as far south as Jeonju, once the capital of Hubekje. Let's step back for a second here. This is effectively the third major offensive for the Mongols. In 1218, they had marched their way into northwest Korea with the pretext of following the Gitan rebels. They forced the Koreans into a tribute system and then abused that tribute system. The Koreans fought back, passively and actively, and they came back in 1231, the Mongols did, and laid waste to the western seaboard of Korea, as far south as the southeastern province. But as soon as the Mongols left, the Koreans fought back again, retreating to more defensible islands and mountain forts and then killing all the Mongol commissioners left behind. So here are the Mongols again. Since the Mongols first encroached on Korean soil, the Koreans had begun preparations in secret. Namely, they bolstered their large fortresses. People in smaller towns and rural areas were evacuated to coastal islands and mountain citadels. They also adapted their military strategy. Not once did Goryeo attempt to field an army against the Mongols head-to-head. Instead, they organized small patrols called byalcho, Cho which conducted guerrilla warfare, such as surprise night raids and ambushes. They also upped their spirituality. Pretty much every religion was employed in favor of surviving the Mongols – shaman priests, astrologers, and Buddhists alike. The single greatest of these was a Herculean project of of what is now known as the Tripitaka Koreana. The Tripitaka is basically the Buddhist canon, kind of like the Buddhist Bible. Imagine carving every single word in the buddhist scripture started in 1237 it would take 16 years for an army of monks to create 81,137 woodblocks it's comprised of 52,330,152 uh, i'm sorry 330,000,152 characters which are organized in over 1,496 titles and 6,568 volumes by the way, um, I think there's an effort to rename it something other than the Tripitaka Koreana because actually there's a lot of things in addition to the, the Buddhist scripture that is in- included in it, including some very you know, native Korean um, studies on Buddhism, for example. It's notable that it was a royal court that spearheaded this undertaking and not the military government. The king himself participated in the Buddhist ceremonies underlying his largely symbolic role. And of course, the purpose of this was spiritual, yes, but also symbolic. I don't know how many people at the time actually, believe, actually believed that the carvings of these woodblocks would actually cause some supernatural phenomenon to manifest itself. I do believe, however, that this act must have been an incred- incredibly important act that unified the country and made a statement that its citizens were a cultured, spiritual, righteous people and that the invaders were godless infidels. Despite its enormous cost, which surely could have been useful to the military, there must have been enough support amongst the populace to continue to support it for 16 years during the worst of the invasion. These kinds of national acts are not unique to Gordia or this time period. I think of the British during the bombings of World War II, carrying on in their pubs as an act of defiance and an assertion of their culture, even at the risk of death. I guess that sounds a little trite since I'm comparing buddhist scripture to drinking a pint but brits you did this to yourselves and and you probably love it let's face it the mongol onslaught continued to cause defections jo hyun-sup and Yi won-u would submit to the mongols with 2000 men they would join hong bogon in laodong isn't that funny we always talk about how many koreans must have chinese ancestry but it's also the other way around, because you have all these Goryans defecting to the Laodong Peninsula. So, many Chinese today have Korean ancestry. Despite Gorya's valiant resistance, the Mongols are too much. In 1238, the Koreans have to submit again. They desperately need a rest. So, they pleaded their eternal submission to the Mongols once again, and the Yuan reply came in 1239. Again, the Mongols, having received a submission, withdrew their forces from Korea. Given that the Mongols were fighting four major wars at the time, I'm sure they were eager to accept the Koreans' surrender without inquiring too much into the Koreans' sincerity. Let's face it, by this time, um, you'd seriously have to question how sincere the Koreans were after uh, submitting three times and coming back. Again, the Mongols demanded that the king himself present himself at the Mongol court. But the Koreans delayed once again. First first they said that the king was mourning the Gorya Queen Dowager's death. Then they said he was ill. Then they said he was mourning his mother. Then he was too old. But eventually the Koreans had to cave. So they sent Jun, the Duke of Shinan, who they passed off as the king's younger brother. This bought them a few more years. Next, they took a royal relative, Sun, who was actually the Duke of Yongnyang, and proclaimed him to be the crown prince. Sun definitely was from the royal family, but his family had branched from the main stem a few generations before. But along with ten officials and male relatives, he entered the Mongol court as a hostage. For the time being, it worked. This 17-year-old false prince as well as the relatives of Hong boguan were led to Ogadai, Ogadai Khan, at the Quaracorum. Ogadai was so pleased that he awarded the Mongol general that brought them with the office of supreme military commander over seven provinces. It wouldn't be until 14 years later that the Mongols would discover that he was not the crown prince. That is phenomenal trickery. I guess we shouldn't be too surprised then that Sun would end up serving the Mongols loyally. After all, he was given up as a sacrif- sacrificial pawn by the Korean court. He ended up marrying a Mongol princess, and that would be the first link of marriage between the Mongols and the Goryeo royal family. Well, good for him. Anyway, this sleight of hand would buy the Koreans a truce for the next six years until 1247. The Mongols were now sending a steady stream of envoys to Gangwa Island. In fact, buildings began to spring up at Sengcheonbu, the launching point between the island and the mainland, which by the way is in present-day North Korea now. They did in fact manage to get the king to cross the strait to the mainland a few times to meet with the Mongol envoys, but Cheu Woo and his successors would live the rest of their lives on that island which is incredible. Imagine uh, not being able to leave a, a tiny little island f- for your entire life. You can only stall the Mongols for so long. In the, uh, the Kuraltai of 1246, in which Guyuk is elected Khan, the Mongols would decide to attack Korea again. In autumn of 1247, the Mongols commanded by Marshal Amukhan, and again accompanied by our old friend Hong Bogwan, arrive in Yunnan In early 1248, the capital issues the order to evacuate all the people in the walled cities who by this point presumably had come back to their homes to start farming and carry on their life as before uh, back to the coastal islands. Now imagine this. Let's just take a moment here. Okay? You're a farmer. And in 1231, the Mongols drive you off your land. You go back in 1232 and try to reseed your crops which probably have been burnt down to the soil or were eaten by the Mongol soldiers. Three years later, it's the same story. 1235, you're ordered to evacuate your home again and escape to the islands. And if you're still alive and you've made it this far, you return to your fields in 1238 and try to restart your life again when seven years later, you have to run away again. It's just brutal and there are, there are studies in korea where which show like the crop yields during that period just plummeted the koreans knew about this impending attack because they began to see packs of mongol horsemen roaming across the land these mongols said they were hunting but the korean authorities suspected them of being reconnaissance groups the histories record that quote the sahe province commissioner Sa, reported that 40 mounted barbarians forded the chung uh, chungchun river and entered the borders saying they were hunting marmots. Due to this, all the Yangban who had gone to gegyang returned to Kanghwa. This would imply Mongol control north of the Chungchun River, uh, which is below the Yalu River, which is plausible because the Yuan records mention that some cities in the northwest were retaken at this time. And side note here, what this means is that there is still a definitive difference between Mongol control and Mongol suzerainty. This river is in the northwest of Korea and is south of Pyongyang, so that it looks like the Mongols controlled the territory north of that river. In, 1215, all, in 1250, all the people of the northwestern frontier district were moved southward to the western capital, um, Pyongyang, Gyeong, and Seahe province. Mongols and Gorya diplomatic ties remained, with Mongol envoys continuing to visit the capital. As far as the Eastern Jurchen were concerned, relations were still very bad, even though they and the Goryeans were officially vassals of the Mongols. In spring of 1247, for example, a dispatch from the Jurchen notifying the Koreans that 50 Jurchen men were being sent into Gorya territory to search for fugitives received a response from Gorya, that there could be no possibility of travelers in that region, since the mountains and roads were so perilous between the two countries. Further, the Gorya reply went on to accuse the Jurchen of raiding Goryeo under the pretext of hunting, or tracking down fugitives. It was also during this fourth ass- offensive that Cheu dies and Che Hang takes control of Goryeo. If you want to know more about that transfer of power, um, listen to my bro- uh, my episodes. Um, prior to this one. Let's take a brief tour of Ganghwa Island at this point. Remember that the fateful decision to relocate the capital of Goryeo to Ganghwa was made by Che Wu in 1232. You may also recall that so hasty was the move that the king had to stay in a hostel. Well, by this time, the 1240s, the Goryans have made the best of their situation and have made Ganghwa Island a more livable home. The city of Gangdo was made the official capital. The king had long since relocated first from the hostel to a general's home, then to a palace, which we believe was at least completed by 1243. We know this because that's when we get the first recorded mention of the bongwal, or palace. Next were the ball fields. You may recall the game of Korean Polar, or gyokku, which so attracted the ire of the censors before the military coup. Um, I guess old habits die hard, though. Temples and shrines, all resembling those of the older capital. In this, the Koreans were not alone. This reminds me a lot of how the Song, the Chinese Song, were forced to re- relocate their capital from Kaifeng to Hangzhou, although they had to do it in 12, 12, 11, 12, uh, excuse me, 1129, almost a century, century earlier. And for the Chinese, it wasn't to escape the Mongols, but to escape the Jin Empire. The Song never intended Hangzhou to be the capital, but gradually they settled there and Hangzhou basically was modeled after Kaifeng. Unfortunately, Hangzhou sits between a mountain and a river, and so it became incredibly crowded. There's a great book about contemporary Hangzhou called Daily Life in China on the Eve of the Mongol Invasion. 1250-1276, 1250 to 1276, written by a French writer named Jacques Gernet. If you want to know how advanced China was right before the Mongols threw a wrench in their civilization, read that book. It gives you a sense that Song China truly was at the pinnacle of society in the entire world, not just Asia. Also on the island was the Bongun Temple, the National Academy, or Gukjagam, built in 1251. And the office for xylographs of the Tripitaka, or Dejang Pandang, where in 1251 the Tripitaka was completed. Of course, also on the island were the buildings belonging to the Chue clan, including the household bureau, or the Jin Yang Bu. The Chue mansions and grounds were especially spectacular. In 1234, Chue Wu had used the Dobang and 4,000 soldiers to transport lumber by ship from the old capital the process during which, it is said, many drowned. They also brought back enough pine and juniper trees to make a park several tens of leaves in area by the mansion. Che built an enormous, quote-unquote, winged pavilion, or shipjagak so-called because it was shaped like a big cross, which sat west of his mansion. To the south was an en- enormous tower, said to have a capacity of a thousand people, which overlooked the polo field. Korean polo, um, as I just mentioned, Gyeokku, um, by the way, is said to have originated in Persia and was picked up by the Chinese and brought to Shila by Tang China back in around 600 to 900. Both Che U and Che Hang were fond of Gyokku and would sponsor matches that would be veritable festivals with a king and chief ministers in attendance and with javelin throwing and mountain- mounted archery contests thrown in. Sometimes these events would last five or six days. It's hard to imagine that all this took place while the Mongols were ravaging the mainland. It's good to be an aristocrat, I guess. So, back to the narrative. Che dies in the winter of 1249, and as I detail in my Tui Dynasty episodes, there is a predictable purge of the old officials. Director of Affairs for the Bureau of Military Affairs, Min Hui, and his co-administrator, are exiled to the islands. In 1251, Mongke ascends to the Mongol throne and, re- and he repeats the two main demands of the Mongols from before, that the king visit the Mongol court and that the capital be, move, uh, excuse me, be moved back to the mainland. Again, the Gorya officials deliberate, trying to avoid both of these demands. The Goryeoans reply that the king was too old and too sick to travel. By mid 1252, 2,000 Eastern Jurchen troops are spotted crossing the frontier just prior to the arrival of a delegation of Mongol envoys to the capital. By autumn of 1252, the Koreans are expecting the worst. The special supervisors of defense were sent to all the mountain for- fortresses. And here we come to the fourth offensive. In early 1253, 300 Eastern Jurchen cavalry surround Dengju in the northwest. The fourth Mongol offensive of Korea had begun. By summer, the enormity of the offensive became clear when some citizens of Wonju, taken captive by the Mongols, were sent to the capital to inform the Koreans that Amukhan and Hongbogwan had told the emperor that Korea had no intention of returning the capital to the mainland. The emperor ordered 10,000 to enter Korea from the eastern frontier. He then ordered Amukhan and Hongbogon to enter from the northern frontier. After some diplomatic correspondence between Mongol prince Yeku and the Koreans, in the fifth month of 1253, the the Mongols once again crossed the Yalu. The Goryeo chief ministers considered sending the crown prince or his younger brother to lead the officials of the third rank and below out to submit. Choi Hang, however, replied that They had already continued to submit during the spring and autumn, and they had already sent 300 envoys in the past, and none had returned. Thus, he questioned whether submitting would stop the invasions. Meanwhile, the Mongols pillaged throughout the northeast, while another force force pillaged Sahe province in the northwest. Again, Prince Yeku repeated his demands. The king had six days to appear on the mainland. The Gorya ministers sent gifts to the Mongols, then replied, If the Mongol armies withdraw, they would leave the islands and return to a peaceful life on the mainland. Yeku responded that the troops could be withdrawn only when the king came out. Meanwhile, the Mongol forces rode unchecked in groups ranging from 10 to 3,000. As before, Goryeo avoided head-to-head combat, conserving their meager resources on defense and sending out night raids by the Biaocha. Fierce fighting surrounded the cities, the garrisons in these towns were truly on their own. In one shining example, Chungju withstood a 70-day siege led by Special Defense Supervisor Kim Yun-hoo. When supplies ran out, Kim told his men to forget their class differences. He then burned the government slave registers and divided up the livestock which had been captured. He promised that everyone who gave their all would receive an official rank. All his men fought valiantly and held back the Mongols. True to his word, the Goryeo officials kept Kim's promise, and early in the following year, Kim was made supervisor of the gate guards and given a temporary rank of supreme general, while those in his force, including former government slaves and Baekjeong, were given rank in accordance with their station. If you've listened to any of my other episodes on military rule, you know how special and rare that is. They were not promoting slaves or Baekjong back during the Chui dynasty because Chui just did not have enough political capital to be able to do that sort of thing. In fact, he started, he stuck to the establishment and the the aristocrats and he tried to promote people from within the aristocratic ranks because he needed their help. He needed their support. So for the Goryeo government to, you know, award these, promotions to slaves is is a big deal. Unfortunately, not all cities were so fortunate. In one city, the Mongols built a double wooden barricade around the city to prevent escape. Eventually, the wells ran dry inside the city, and so the inhabitants drank the blood of the livestock. Some people even burned themselves and their families to death to escape the the, the fate that (laughs) awaited them. There was an attempt by a squad to break through the barriers, but they were unsuccessful. In the end, the Mongols sl- slaughtered everyone in the city. In the winter of 1253, Prince Yeku gets sick during the siege of Chungju and is urged by a div- diviner to leave. Taking a thousand men, he rides north, presumably to Gyegyang. Gorya sends the Count of Yongan, or Gong Wang He, to again ply the prince with gifts and to request that the Mongols withdraw. But Yeku only responds, quote, the troops can be withdrawn only when the king crosses the river to welcome my envoys, unquote. He then sends 10 men to Gangwa Island headed by Day, or Mengkuta, who, by the way, is a progenitor of the Mangud people, who would earn such a fr- fierce reputation that the U.S. Army to this day still names one of its multi-test training sessions after him. Finally, after long for after a long nineteen years since the capital absconded to Gangwa Island from Gegyang, the k- the king crosses the water to the mainland, escorted by eighty men of the night patrol or the Yabiaocho. Whereas the king normally received Mongol envoys at Chepo, the entry point to Gangwa Island, this time he met them at the new palace at Chunbu, the launching point on the mainland to the island, which by this time had become a walled city. This, of course, was a huge symbolic milestone for this invasion. Things must have been pretty grim for the Koreans to finally concede this important point and to send the king out. Mangyude accused the king of killing thousands to save himself and demanded his submission. Yeku's envoys tell the Gordians to establish, or shall we say, we sh- uh, shall we say re-establish, Dariachi and to take down the walls on Gangwa and the customary demands for gold, silver, otter pelmet, pelts, ramey cloth, and other items were made. To their demands, the Gordians pointed out that it wasn't their custom to live out in the open in such a manner, since they had been targets of pirates since time immemorial, and they reminded Yeku that he had promised that the Mongols would withdraw if the king crossed to the mainland, which he so clearly just did. To Yeku's demands for goods, the Koreans begged in insolvency, but did send some articles in good faith. But it wasn't looking good for the Koreans. In the last month of 1253, the Mongols lifted the siege of Chungju. Chang, the Duke of Anyang or Angyongong um, Wang Chang, is dispatched to the Mongol garrison. The next couple of months are quiet, save for some reports that the Mongols tried their hand at amphibious warfare landing seven troop ships on Gal Island, which is this tiny island off the coast of present-day North Korea, and taking 30 households hostage. Otherwise, it was quiet, mainly because Yeku was dismissed from duty by the Mongols, not because he was sick, but because he was resentful at having to report to Prince Tala-er. In spring of 1253, the Mongols under Amukhan began withdrawing after the vi- visit from Chang. By now, the Korean king, Gojong, was in the habit of traveling to Chunbu to meet the Mongol envoys. But soon the Koreans would receive notice that the Mongol emperor had appointed Jalartai to govern Dongguk, or the eastern country, a.k.a. Korea. But hold on, who is the Mongol emperor at this point? Let's step away from the narratives for a second and let's just take a quick look to remind ourselves of the time that has passed since the Mongols first set foot on the Korean Peninsula, ostensibly to help rid the Koreans of the Khitan. Remember that Genghis Khan himself started the conquest of Korea back in, well, you can say 1216 is when they came up right to the edge of uh, Goryeo but did not enter. 1218 is when they finally crossed the Yellow River. So Genghis Khan started it. He dies in 1227. Next goes to Talui Khan, then Ogadai Khan, then Torigin Khan Katun, then Güyük Khan, then Ogul Kemish, then Mongke. So the current emperor in 1254 is Mongke Khan. The conquest of Korea has dragged on for so long that the Mongol Empire has changed emperors six times. Imagine a U.S. war that has lasted six changes in presidencies. In today's terms, that means a war that was started under Jimmy Carter's presidency continues till today. So, shortly thereafter, another envoy arrives with a dispatch which read Although the king had crossed to the mainland, Yi Engyal, Zhu Young-gyu, and Yu Yang, and most importantly, Cui Hang, the military ruler, had not come over. Quote, unquote, was this truly submission, the note ominously asked. Indeed, we have not seen the end of this conquest, and that's where we'll end this episode. Come on, the best of you. Don't get war,